All right, precious be to our loving Father that we are able to spend some time together this evening, though we cannot see each other in person, at least we're able to gather together uh, through the uh, blessing of <clears throat> modern technology. And so today we will continue our study of the book of Revelation. We're going to look and examine the contents of Revelation chapter 13. It's not really a long chapter, but it's so packed with information, and we're going to be looking into Daniel so that we can understand the symbolism, the metaphors used in the book of Revelation. So Revelation 13 introduces us to the beast. Well, in actuality, the beast was introduced in Revelation, back in Revelation chapter 11, when it says that the beast overcame and overpowered the two witnesses. The beast put them to death, right? But it didn't really tell us anything about the beast. And so when we go to Revelation 13, what the Apostle John does is give us some back notes on the origin of the beast, who the beast is, what he will do, and what his purpose is. So without further ado, let's go ahead and go to uh, Revelation chapter 13. Let's read 13, and the verse is 1. This is what it tells us. Uh, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads, uh, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And so, according to the book of Revelation, in the vision of the Apostle John, the Bible is introducing to us the origin, basically, of the beast. What is the origin of the beast? Bible says it's rising up out of the sea. So we have a beast with seven heads and ten horns. His horns has ten crowns, and his heads a blasphemous name. When we find this kind of description in the Holy Bible, we know there's a lot of symbolism, right? And so when we find symbolism, we look elsewhere in the Holy Scriptures so that we can be informed in our understanding of the book of Revelation. Turns out the book of Revelation chapter 13 is very much related to Daniel chapter 7. As a matter of fact, we can consider that Revelation 13 is the continuation of Daniel 7, uh, set apart by hundreds of years, but they go and coincide together. It seems that the Apostle John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, especially chapter 13, it was understood that the readers are well-versed or understand or have already read the book of Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 7. So there's a lot of correspondences between Revelation 13 and Daniel 7. So when we go to Revelation 13, verse 1, and it mentions beast rising up out of the sea, you can be sure to read that in the book of Daniel. And so we go to Daniel 7, 2 to 3. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And so we can see in Daniel, in his vision, he sees four great beasts. And when we go to the book of Revelation, it also mentions the beast. So there's a relationship there. We can be informed about Revelation by studying the book of Daniel. And so Daniel tells us there's this four great beasts, and they come out from the sea, which is what the beast will be doing in Revelation 13. He's going to arise or come up from the sea. So what does the sea represent? In other 
uh, mess messages of scripture in Isaiah, for example, 17, 12 to 13, it says, woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of many waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. In the book of Isaiah, the sea is, symbolize, is symbolizing many people when they are rushing to do something. In other words, there's confusion and they want to, and so there's a lot of fidgeting, a lot of movement, and this rushing of people are likened to the roar of the seas. We find the symbolism of water and the seas being likened to the people also in Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so the Bible tells us that waters, the sea, they are synonymous prophetically with people, a multitude of people. What kind of people, what will characterize the people that is represented or symbolized by sea in the book of Isaiah 57 20 but the wicked are like the troubled sea what it came when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and death and so throughout scripture whenever we come across the word sea a lot of times it represents wickedness it represents trouble it represents people who are living in wickedness and because of this they are like the troubled See, and so even in the book of Revelation 21, when the apostle John is describing the holy city coming down from heaven, the New Jerusalem, the Bible says, and there was no more sea, right? So the sea represents the judgment of Yahuwah, because Revelation 13, that event, when the apostle John is describing to us the origin of the beast, remember, there was the rapture, right? The two witnesses go up first and afterwards the rapture of those who were mature followers of our King Yahusha. And so they go to heaven. And so the people who were left behind, well, you can already envision what they're thinking, right? The people who were left behind are those who were mired in wickedness, those who accepted the preaching of the beast, because before the beast rises to power, he was already gaining popularity and he ends up killing the two witnesses. And so that that's the situation. And so we know people are confused, people are terrified, they're looking for answers, and so the beast will come out from this uh, uh, collection of people who are wicked and filled with trouble. And so that's the beast rising up out of the sea. The Bible says it has seven heads and ten horns. The heads represents leaders, kings, or kingdoms. And the horns represent power. What does that mean? In Habakkuk 3 verse 4, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. And so prophetically, the word horn correspond to power. And so this beast will have powers, and it's going to be comprehensive power. It's going to be vast power and authority. Because it has, it is, he has 10 horns. Normally, a person who has power has two horns, but this one has considerable power and authority. And so he's not your normal world leader. He is a world leader who will have dominion over 10 kingdoms, perhaps, 
And this word leader is going to have a lot of power because the horns represent power in the ancient world. Horns express the power and fearsomeness of an animal. Thus in ancient and biblical literature, a horn became an idiom for authority or power. So we know the beast will have authority. The beast will have power. And where will this power and authority come from? Now the beast, which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And so the horns, the heads, uh, the power and authority that the beast will have, where will it come from? It will come from the dragon. And we already talked about the dragon 12. We know that the dragon is not going to give up. He's going to keep attacking uh, those who are going to be left behind because there's still an opportunity for those who are left behind to show their testimony of Yahusha, to get to show faith and to obey and keep the commandments of Yahuwah Abba. And so the devil is going to make war against them, right? So the devil is going to use a, an instrument. This instrument is going to be called the beast. He'll be the ultimate instrument of the dragon. If we go back in biblical history, the devil has used many instruments in the past, right? For example, there's Nimrod. There's Nebuchadnezzar, there is Antiochus Epiphanes, there is uh, Emperor Nero, just to name a few. And so the devil over the years has used instruments, either politicians or leaders, and he will influence them in such a way to bring destruction and oppression upon the people of the world. So the, the, the dragon is going to be behind the beast. He'll be empowering the beast, giving him his throne and his power and his great authority. Now, to what is this beast likened to? It's interesting. It's likened to a leopard, a, be a bear, and a lion, right? Now, we've studied this already. And if you will remember, we got this from the book of uh, Daniel chapter 7 again. Like I said, Revelation 13, Revelation 7, they go together. They're meant to be understood and read together. And so when we go to Daniel 7, 2 to 3, Daniel spoke, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four great beasts came up from the sea, each, each different from the other. We studied Daniel uh, chapter 7 before, and you can look back at our past uh, BHP episodes if you want an in-depth study of the book of Daniel. But to give you a summary, the book of Daniel chapter 7 is telling us about the history that will take place in the future. And so all prophecy eventually becomes history. And so when Daniel first wrote these events, it hasn't transpired yet. Now, because we live past the days of Daniel, the prophecy has now become history. And so the prophet Daniel, when he speaks about four great beasts, he was speaking about four as kingdoms that appeared one after the other. And these kingdoms also correspond to another vision that the prophet Daniel had that was described in Daniel chapter 2. Again, we studied in depth Daniel chapter 2. If you want to go further, you can check out the episode that we did on Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we know Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he could not understand the meaning of that dream. Turns out Daniel knew about his dream and could explain it. And so the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was about a statue. And the statue had a head made of gold, and then the uh, chest and arms were made of silver, and then the torso was made of brass, and then the thighs and legs were made of iron, 
and then the feet were made of iron and clay, and there was also a stone in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so he had Daniel interpret the dream. And so Daniel shows up and he tells him all about the dream and what the what is this all about? What does gold, how was this fulfilled? The gold part of the statue, the head. In Daniel chapter 7, in the verses 4, when Daniel explains uh, Daniel chapter 2, um, he gives an explanation that matches Daniel chapter 7 when it comes to describing the beasts. And so these beasts correspond to Daniel chapter 2. And so in Daniel 7, 4, which is a different incident, different dream altogether, we have here uh, Daniel explaining the meaning of the four beasts that he saw. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And so the lion that was, which was the first beast that was described by the prophet uh, Daniel, he says it had eagle's wings. Normally uh, lions do not have eagle's wings. And so what was this about? A lion that had eagle's wings wings and then the wings were plucked off and so we when we go to the book of jeremiah 49 19 and 21 behold uh, he shall come up like a lion right verse 20 therefore hear the counsel of yahuwah that he has taken against edom verse 22 behold he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over bozrah jeremiah in this passage is describing nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. You see, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they're likened to lions with eagles. This is why if you were to go to a, a, a museum that showcases the history of the Babylonian people, you will find images of lions with eagles' wings. That is the symbol of Nebuchadnezzar, the symbol of Babylon. So in the first part of the dream, in Daniel 2, we discuss in Daniel 2, we know it was Babylon, and in the description of the beast, the first beast, which is likened to a lion, that corresponds to the kingdom of Babylon. And so now we go and look at the second uh, beast. The second beast was described by the prophet Daniel as follows, and suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they, and they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. So when we think of a bear, we think of it slowly moving, but whatever's in its way, it's able to overpower. And it mentioned it has three ribs, three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. We've studied this already, and according to history, um, the bear represented the Medo-Persian Empire, succeeding the Babylonian Empire. In this partnership between the Medes and the Persians, the Persians dominated the relationship. So it was one-sided. This is why the bear was always on its one side. Most think the three ribs represent the three great military conquests, Babylon, of course, which is why they overthrew the Babylonians and became the next great uh, major worldwide empire. So it was Babylon and then Egypt and then Lydia. And so we know the second beast represents uh, Medo-Persia, and that represents the silver part of the statue that the prophet Daniel, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about, okay? So now let's go to the third beast. What is the description of the third beast? In Daniel chapter 7 and the verses 6, after this I looked, 
and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So the next um, beast is described as a leopard with four wings. And so a leopard we know is an animal that swiftly attacks and devours its prey. All the more if you add wings to him. So he is going to be aggressive and this king or kingdom is going to take the world by storm. And so what was the fulfillment when it comes to history? Well, the leopard represented the Greek empire. Alexander the Great quickly conquered the civilized world by age 28. Nothing in the history of the world was equal to the conquest of Alexander, who ran through all the countries of Elycrium, the Adriatic Sea, uh, to the Indian Ocean and the River Ganges, and in 12 years subdued part of Europe and all of Asia. And after his death, his empire was divided into four parts or four heads, specifically the four heads were Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, who inherited Alexander's domain after his death. It turns out the four heads was also described by prophecy. This is why when we studied Daniel chapter 2, we know the empire that went after Medo-Persia that is represented by the brass part of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar is Greece. So we have Babylon, then we have Medo-Persia, and then we have Greece, right? And so after Greece, what comes up next? Well, we know it's going to be related to the fourth beast. And what is the fourth beast? In Daniel 7, 7 to 8, after this, I saw in the night, uh, in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Remember in Revelation 13, we have the beast coming up, arising from the people. And so here we have a little horn that's coming up out of among them. And so we have there a connection. So the little horn somehow may be related to the beast. And we're going to look at that pattern and kind of see how it connects so that we can be informed concerning what to expect when the beast is going to come up and he's going to take over the world, okay? So we know that it's related to this fourth beast, this fourth empire or kingdom. So what is it? How is it characterized? Bible tells us this fourth beast has... Ten horns. Bible says this beast, this empire, the fourth one, according to Daniel, is different from the rest. And so unlike the uh, first three beasts, there's something different, something that makes it unique. And one of the things that makes it unique is the fact it has ten horns, right? Ten horns. Where did we hear that before? Isn't that Revelation chapter 13? So me that there's a connection or relationship there. So what are the 10 horns? Well, Daniel 7, uh, verse 24, the 10 horns are 10 kings. 
And when we speak of kings, it also is like speaking of kingdoms. So kingdoms and kings, they kind of go together because a kingdom is known by the king. Like, for example, the kingdom of Germany is known by Hitler. Kingdom of Babylonia or Babylon is known by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so ten horns are ten kings or ten kingdoms who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. And so the Bible tells us that the ten horns are ten kingdoms. And so this empire is going to be divided somehow into ten kingdoms. And these ten kingdoms will have three of the kingdoms be uprooted. It's going to be subdued. So ten kingdoms with three uprooted with three subdued, okay? And so was that fulfilled in actual history? Uh, according to history, for example, the one here uh, given to us by amazingfacts.org, the 10 horns represent the 10 kings or kingdoms into which pagan Rome was eventually split. If we study history, we know the great kingdoms went from Babylon to Persia to Greece and then to Rome, right? And Rome, turns out, was divided into 10 kingdoms. The Visigoths, the Anglo-Saxons, the Franks, the Alemanni, the Burgundians, the Lombards, the Suevi, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. And it turns out, out of the 10 kingdoms, three were rooted up. This is why there's no longer a modern kingdom of Heruli. There's no more modern kingdom of the Ostrogoths. There's no more modern kingdom of the Vandals because they were uprooted. However, today, uh, these seven kingdoms from where we have Rome eventually divide into still exist today in the modern form, right? The Visigoths, Spain. Anglo-Saxons, England. The Franks, France. Alemanni, uh, Germany. Burgundians, Switzerland. Lombards, Italy. Suevi, Portugal, okay? So we have seven, which still remain today, and three who no longer exist because they were uprooted. All in all, you have 10 kingdoms, the origin of which is the Roman Empire. It turns out, if you still remember the prophecy in Daniel, three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And so a church historian who was studying this, he noticed the pattern and he wrote a book entitled God Cares. His name is Dr. Mervyn Maxwell, the Catholic Emperor Zeno, arranged a treaty with the Ostrogoths in 487, which resulted in the eradication of the Aryan Heruls in 493, and the Catholic Emperor Justinian exterminated the Aryan Vandals in 534 and significantly broke the power of the Aryan Ostrogoths in 538. Thus were Daniel's three horns, the Heruls, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths plucked up, plucked up by the roots. And so because of the characteristic of the Roman Empire, how it rose to power, conquered most of the world, and then was divided into 10 separate kingdoms, seven of which still remains today. So we can kind of say the Roman Empire still exists, but it just has been divided into seven kingdoms or 10 kingdoms, seven still exist. Maybe in the future, all 10 or all seven, plus three more perhaps are going to maybe unite we, maybe that will unfold in the future and have kind of a revival of the so-called Roman Empire. But nevertheless, we find that when we go back to the statue 
when we go from gold to silver to brass to iron, iron representing Rome, we can say that even up to today, right? Roman Empire still kind of exists, but it's no longer purely Roman Empire. This is why when you look at the feet, it's not just iron, it's mixed in with what? Clay. And so when the Roman Empire was divided into 10, it incorporates now other kingdoms. And so you have a more comprehensive kingdom. It's no longer just Rome. It's going to be a worldwide empire. And so how is this described in the Holy Bible? Iron and clay. What does that correspond to? Daniel 7, 19 and 20. And I wish to know uh, the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, right? Exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its uh, nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces and, tram uh, and trampled the residue with its feet and the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn, which came up before which three fell, namely the horn, which had eyes and the mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And so the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, somehow will continue to survive, albeit not by the label Rome, but somehow its influence will remain intact. And from this influence, eventually there's going to continue a worldwide empire that will be controlled by the little horn. This is why the fourth beast is unlike the others. This fourth beast will continue. It will continue to grow, eventually produce a leader that will make it worldwide. And so it's going to conquer the world because of the leadership of this horn who's going to arise out of the sea or arise out of the multitude of people. And so Daniel 7, 21 to 22, prophet Daniel wanted to know more about the fourth beast. And this is what he finds out. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And so this little horn, right, is going to gain political power. It will use that political power to attack and make war against the saints. And he will prevail against them. Until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess uh, the kingdom. What else was, will this little horn do? Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. And so it will devour the whole earth through the leadership of a future leader, which is the little horn. And what else will the little horn do? Daniel 7, 24, 25, the 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the most high, persecute the saints of the most high and shall intend to change uh, times and law then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. And so this is what, this is the description of the little horn. And so when we go to Daniel chapter seven and look at the description of what the little horn is going to do, we can summarize it as follows. The little horn will arise. 
You will start out unknown. That's why it's called the little horn. Nobody notices a little horn, but the little horn will grow in power. The little corn will grow in authority. And eventually he's going to be the leader of this new empire, okay? And so he will speak pompous words against the most high. He will persecute and make war against the saints of the most high. He will change the times and the law, and he will have power for a time and times and half a time that corresponds to 1,260 days or the, the last 3.5 years of the biblical seven years of tribulation. Okay, so that's the little horn. And so when we go back to the statue, right, we go from Babylon and then to Medo-Persia and then to Greece and then to Rome, but something happens to Rome. Rome divides into 10 parts and the influence continues. It doesn't really die out. And eventually, this influence is going to be uh, gathered together again and create a future world empire to be led by this little horn. And who is going to empower this little horn? This beast that will come up from the sea. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. And so this beast right, rising up above the sea this beast is going to be the result of all the work of the previous beast. It will have all the powers of the previous beast. And so he's going to have seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth uh, of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So the Apostle John is telling us that this beast is related to the sequence of empires that took place from Babylon to Medo-Persia to uh, Greece and then to Rome. And from Rome, this uh, beast, this little horn is going to emerge and he will be empowered by the dragon. This is why when the dragon was described in Revelation chapter 12, this is how it was described, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And so the authority, the power of this beast will come directly from the devil. The dragon is going to empower uh, the beast. The beast is going to be his ultimate instrument, like nothing has ever been seen before. All the other past instruments of the devil, the dragon, pales in comparison when it comes to uh, this beast. So the beast is the ultimate instrument of the dragon. However, uh, the dragon, as he will use the beast to try and deceive the whole world because he doesn't want the world to be saved, the dragon has a big problem in his hands. You know what it is? I mean, his job is to deceive the whole world, right? His job is to convince the people to worship him and to worship the beast, but he's going to have a hard time. Why? Because before all this takes place, right, we know what happened when the seven trumpets sounded, and right before the seven trumpets sounded, in Revelation 11, 11 to 13, the beast kills the two, the, the two witnesses, but then what happens to the two witnesses? Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud 
and their enemy saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tent of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The people of the world, they despised the two witnesses. When they preached, they did not like what they were, what they were hearing because it made them have to change their ways because the, the witnesses were preaching the law of Yahuwah. The two witnesses are going to preach about Yahushua. The two witnesses are going to preach against the ways of the world. And the people of the world love the ways of the world. And so when they were preaching, they did not like it. This is why they applauded the beast when the beast killed the two witnesses. But then something happened to the two witnesses, which brought fear in the hearts of the enemies of the two witnesses. You notice what happened when the two witnesses all of a sudden stood up on their feet and they ascended to heaven? Bible says there was great fear. The rest were afraid. And they ended up giving glory to who? Yahuwah Abba. I'm sure there was a, a great work of repentance. Many people repented, repented. Many people turned to Yahushua because of the testimony of the two witnesses and the work of the assembly. And so this is going to happen. And so when the devil is left with the people who were left behind, these people who were left behind when they see the rapture or the harpazo taking place, well, the people, of course, are going to be wondering, oh boy, we made a big mistake. We better turn to Christ now. We better heed the voice of Yahuwah. And so the devil has his work cut out for him. And so what is he going to do? How can the dragon deceive the world to worship him and the beast? Well, look at what happens in Revelation 13, 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. And so this beast somehow is going to be mortally wounded. Some scholars say he's going to be killed. But then he was go he's going to be healed. And so when the people see that the beast, who overpowered the two witnesses, is himself subjected to death or is killed, but after a while is restored, maybe resurrected, the people are going to marvel. The people are going to again look at the beast and follow the beast. And so something magnificent, something miraculous is going to happen here. Now, is it a fake uh, miracle? Could be. Is it a fake resurrection? Could be. Is it a real resurrection? Maybe he was not really dead. Mortally wounded doesn't mean dead. right? He could have been mortally wounded and somehow was healed miraculously by the devil because the devil has power too. And so maybe he was dead for a while. But the resurrection he had was a different kind of resurrection. Maybe his dead body was taken over by the spirit of the beast himself. And so there are many scenarios. But when we look at Revelation 5, 6 and compare it to Revelation 13, 3, what the devil seems to be doing is he's kind of mimicking. He's trying to make it appear that this beast is the Messiah. It's going to be a false Messiah. Remember, the beast will not... Uh, will not bring fear in the hearts of people. The beast, when we call it beast, it seems like it's going to be scary, right? Like when, when we saw the picture, the, the cover of today's uh, BHP, when you see the 666 and the beast, it's pretty frightening, right? You're not going to go, go there and say, wow, I want to worship that beast. I like that beast. Oh, no. The beast, when he shows up, he's not going to be frightening. He's going to be cheered upon. People are going to love him. People are going to worship him, especially if 
they see that he's mortally wounded, perhaps even dead, and then he is brought back to life because he's going to copy the lamb. He's going to cop, he's going to create an imposter, a false messiah, because the devil wants people to worship someone other than the true messiah. Why not the beast? I mean, he died and now he's back to life. Maybe he is the true messiah. And so that's the work of the beast. And so the question is, is this a fake resurrection event? Well, there's an interesting passage in the book of Revelation 13, verse 4. So right after the, the beast is mortally wounded, and then he is restored back to health, in 13.4, look at the result of what happened. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast who was able to make war with him? And so there's going to be some powerful, miraculous event, okay, when they see the beast restored, revitalized. The people of the world are going to be moved. They're going to be marveling at the beast, and they're going to worship the beast, and they're going to worship the dragon. And additionally, according to Revelation 17, 8, this is how it describes what happened to the beast. This is why it could be a fake resurrection or maybe a resurrection that is not the real resurrection. You know, uh, in Revelation 17, 8, it says the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life on the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. That's interesting phraseology. It seems that the apostle John is telling us this beast was before he was alive and then he's killed. And then he is again, right? And so it could be speaking about a resurrection. Maybe not a true resurrection, the same way a person who's resurrected by Yahusha into a glorious body, this is a different kind, maybe. Or maybe you're going to create disappearance of a resurrection. Nevertheless, doesn't matter what it, what it is, the people are going to buy it. The people are going to marvel at the beast, and they're going to worship the dragon, and the beast. And we're not surprised because of what we call recency bias. It's one of those cognitive uh, distortions. And we talked about negative uh, filtration, negative filter before. There's also a cognitive uh, distortion called recency bias. And so the most recent event has more of an impact than an event that took place long ago. And so because this is what is fresh in their eyes, this is the freshest news. It trumps. They forget all about what happened to the two witnesses. It's called recency bias. And people are inclined not to believe in the things that make them want to, that, that will cause them to give up what they already love. You know, people long for reasons to hold on to their convenient lines. And so because of recency bias and because of the tendency to hold on to what you want to believe, right, instead of surrendering to the will of Yahuwah, the people are not going to worship Yahusha. The people are not going to listen to the teachings of Abba. They're going to go and listen to the beast because what he has to say uh, is something that they want to hear. They're going to receive something that their ears are itching to hear. And so people are going to worship the beast. The people are going to love the beast. And because of this, what will he do? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 
42 months. That is the equivalent of a time, a times and a times and a half. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And so according to Revelation, this beast, not only will he win the hearts of the people of the world, he will blaspheme Yahuwah. He will blaspheme the tabernacle. He will blaspheme everything that represents Elohim. What else will he do? In verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so he's going to make war against the saints and overcome them physically. And he's going to have authority not just over one dominion or one kingdom, but over all the, king, the kingdoms of the world. This is why his empire will not just be one. It will be a worldwide empire. He will control the whole world. What else will he do? In verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of, book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So his agenda is worship. He wants people to worship him. The beast wants to be worshipped, just like the emperors of C the Caesar emperors. Remember during the first century, in the days of our King Yahusha, the people, the Roman Empire, when they were controlling uh, the world, when it was the Roman Empire, the, the fourth beast, during the reign of the fourth beast, the emperor received worship. And those who did not want to worship the emperor, what will happen to them? They be put to death. This is why we had a lot of martyrs in the first century. This is why when our King Yahusha, he spoke the uh, messages to the seven assemblies. He spoke often about Smyrna because they got the worst end of it. They got the worst persecution because they refused to worship uh, the emperors. And so during the days of Rome in the first century, emperor worship was what was required by the citizens of Rome. And so during these days when this new beast power is going to rule, it's going to be the same thing. He wants to be worshipped. And he will also cause the people to worship the dragon, right? And those who will not worship, what will happen to them? Well, let's read 9 to 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So those who are going to be uh those who will not give in to the demands of the beast those who will not worship the beast there are consequences what are the consequences well either they go to captivity or they get killed by the sword and so what's the expectation of yahuwah for his saints the people who uh, profess yahusha for people who obey the commandments of yahuwah what is required from them to be patient not to take matters into their own hand but to be patient okay to wait for Yahuwah's deliverance. Because remember, at this point, Yahuwah wants to test them. You're going to go through the wilderness. Yahuwah wants to test them and place their complete hope and trust in him. Okay? And so if they're going to be sent to captivity, so be it. If they're going to be killed, so be it. Be patient, because Yahuwah will deliver those who are going to be faithful to him. And so when we look at what the beast is going to do, it matches perfectly what was described in Daniel chapter 7 when he was describing the little horn. The little horn will, will rise. 
He will speak pompous words against the Most High. He will persecute and make war against the saints of the Most High. Will change the times in the law. Will have power for a time and times and half a time. So all of this is being done by the beast in Revelation chapter 13. That's why there's a one-to-one a -one correspondence between Revelation 13 and Daniel chapter 7. And so they go together. And so it's like an expanded version of Daniel chapter 7 when you read uh, Revelation chapter 13. However, it's not yet finished. You see, the devil, the dragon, he's not going to have just one beast. Bible says there's another beast. <laughs> what do you mean another beast? Revelation 13, 11 and 12. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And because the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, uh, first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And so there's another beast. There's the beast that comes from the multitude of the people to see. And there's a beast that's also coming from out of the earth. In other words, this beast is going to be powerful as well, but not as powerful as the first beast, because after all, the first beast, the first beast has how many horns? He's got 10 horns. This one has two horns, right? He's likened to a lamb because his work is to do the work that represents the lamb. Who is the lamb? Our King Yahushua. So he's going to try and replace the lamb. He's going to be a preacher of the word, but what he will preach is not the true word because he will speak like what? A dragon. Yeah? And so he will present himself as a preacher, a proclaimer. But he will end up preaching not what Yahuwah wants. But he will end up speaking on behalf of the dragon. And so the beast, who is a political figure, will have as his assistant a false prophet. This is why in the Bible we have the beast and the false prophet and the false prophet will represent the beast the false prophet will preach to the people as the mouthpiece of the beast and what he will do is convince the people to worship the beast and to worship the dragon and so his allegiance is to the political emperor the world dictator who is going to be the the beast and what is given to this other beast to this false prophet Revelation 13, 13 and 14, he performs great signs so that even so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That's a lot of power. Remember the two witnesses? <laughs> what were the two witnesses able to do? Bring fire right from their mouth. And so here, these uh, the false prophet will also have similar power. You see, what the dragon wants to do is kind of like... Uh, get the people to forget all about the two witnesses. And so he's going to make it appear, right? Or he will make the people marvel at the beast because he suffered a mortal wound, but he was healed. Miraculous healing, miraculous restoration of health. Now he's going to use supernatural power, like causing fire to come down from heaven. And so he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And so what we have here is this false preacher is going to require all the people of the world to have like a 
an image of the beast in their homes. <laughs> you got to have an image of the beast in their houses. And in the temple, the temple, they're going to have the image of the beast. And this image of the beast is not going to be like the image that we have today. You know, today we have uh, great technology, right? I mean, when you think of technology, when you think of AI, when you think of robotics, now we have billboards that are animated. I mean, before we did not have billboards that were animated, but now we have billboards that speak. And because of the advent of AI, you can have billboards that represent maybe someone's um, psyche, someone's mental or psychic um, cognitive, or someone's cognition can be represented by AI and displayed on a billboard on an image. Maybe when you hang this picture of the beast in your room, it's going to have eyes that look at you. <laughs> we don't know what kind of image that is, but we know it's going to be an image of the beast. And take a look at what kind of image the, the image of the beast is going to be like in Re Revelation 15. It gets really strange. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Beast should both speak. <laughs> so this image is going to be able to speak. Right and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. That's why this image, if you set up in your house, not only does it talk to you, it not, not only that it may not only contain the essence of one's cognition, it can also have observational powers. It's going to be like a what do you call that camera? Secret camera, spy camera, but it's going to be really high tech. I mean, I think we have the technology to do that now, right? And so, because this image is going to be set up in every home and is going to see what you're doing, <laughs> if you do not obey the beast, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be killed. <laughs> right on the spot, maybe. I don't know how they will set that up. Maybe someone will come over and arrest you, take you captive, or maybe killed on the spot. Right? And so, those who are left behind, I would prefer to be killed on the spot. Right? Might as well say to the beast, you know, if you have a picture, I mean, don't even get the picture of the beast. Don't get the image of the beast. Say to the person who wants to give you the image of the beast, I don't want to worship the beast. I worship Yahusha. I worship Yahuwah. And then get killed on the spot. That's good for you, right? Better to be killed than to be tempted to worship the image of the beast. And so that's one way he will control the people through the, through the use of technology. Not only that, 16 and 17, this is what he does. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so not only will he be controlling, not only will he be, he be a dictator, I mean, can you imagine if Hitler had this technology, right? This beast will have the powers of technology and the powers of the devil backing them up. This is why He's going to be a force to be dealt with. He's going to have power and authority, and those who will contend against him will be, will be overcome. Okay, And not only will he be able to observe and make sure everyone's following him, he also has the ability to control commerce because uh, he will give a certain mark. And without this mark, you basically will not be able to do anything. You basically will be back to the Stone Age without this mark. What is this mark? It's a mark on the right hand or on the foreheads. When you look at the word mark, it's actually a physical mark, like a tattoo. It's a physical thing. 
right? So it's going to be in the, in the hand or in the forehead. We don't know what that is. We don't know exactly what that is. But whatever it is, if you have it, then you can do, you, you can enjoy commerce. You can do business. You can enjoy life. I mean, during the days when the beast will have uh, control over everything, if you are loyal to the beast, you have a good life. Okay? That's why people are going to look at the beast and receive what the beast has to offer and be loyal to him. And so if you don't have the mark, you cannot buy, you cannot sell. And I'm sure he will have control over the internet. You won't be able to worship online like what we're doing now. Right? This is why uh, we wanted you to, I mean, even before the beast will sit in his throne, even before that, on his way to that point where he has complete control over the whole world, from the, the time of his beginning up until then, I'm sure he will have power and influence already over the internet. And so it's good for us to prepare because of the eventuality that he is going to finally sit on his throne and be a complete dictator over the lives of so many people throughout the world, okay? And so he's gonna have this mark and the mark is actually the mark of his name. And his name has a number, right? That's interesting. A name that has a number. And so the name of this beast will have a number. And what is that number? I think you already know, right? What is the number of his name? Well, Revelation 13, 18, the final passage of Revelation chapter 13. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is six, 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 right? And this has created many, many controversial hypotheses, controversial suggestions about who the beast could be because of the number 666. But you have to be careful when it comes to computing the number 666 because really you can come up with any rule that will make it so that the name that you have in front of you can come out as 666. But we have to look at the overall picture. We have to look at the overall pattern, right? The little horn pattern. Does it fit the little horn pattern? If it fits the little horn pattern, it bears a number 666. It's a good likelihood that that is, in fact, perhaps a fulfillment. However, in our studies of the Holy Bible, right, we know there are patterns that are repeated, right? Again and again, patterns are repeated. And it, I believe, this is just uh, my belief, my personal belief. You don't have to accept my personal belief. It is my personal belief that Revelation 13, 18, in fact, Revelation 13 is a pattern that has taken place already and it's being repeated. And just like a fractal pattern is going to find final fulfillment in its most extreme form, most complete form in the end times, okay? Right after the, the harpazo. And so when we have here the beast, we know him to be the Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, Apostle John does not describe the beast as the Antichrist. In the book of John, 1 John, he does mention Antichrist, right? He says in 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. You see, Apostle John knows there's going to be the Antichrist that's going to come. But even before the Antichrist will come, there's going to be many Antichrists 
that will fulfill that role of the Antichrist. In other words, the pattern of the little horn that's going to be found in many people throughout the course of history. This is why it's so important that we look at that little horn pattern because any religion that follows that pattern is following the pattern and the spirit of the Antichrist. And so according to Apostle John, we are at the last hour. In other words, Yahushua has already finished his redemptive work. He already died on the cross. We're at the last hour. And so he also knows when it's at the very last moment of that last hour, this Antichrist, the Antichrist is going to come. And so what he's telling us is a warning. He says there's going to be an Antichrist, and the word Antichrist can have two meanings, against Christ or replacement of Christ. Okay, that's what Antichrist means. It means they will oppose directly, very explicitly go against Christ, right? And there are those who will go will be an Antichrist because they are replacements. Instead of Christ, worship me. Instead of Yahushua, follow me, right? And so that's what it means for Antichrist. Against Christ, replacement of Christ. And Apostle John says, before the Antichrist comes, there's going to be many other iterations of the spirit of the Antichrist. So it's like a fractal pattern. The Antichrist figure will have several repetitions, but it culminates in the, the there's a direct, uh, what do you call that? A different article in front of Antichrist. The Antichrist, not an Antichrist, but the Antichrist will be the final fulfillment of this Antichrist pattern. And so how do we identify this Antichrist pattern? In Revelation 13, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark. And so there's going to be a, some form of dictator who will have control over the people who follow him. No one can buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so he has uh, the ability to control, to control um, uh, everyday lives of individuals. And the name, the title that he has, the name of his title and the name, his name itself, will compute to 666, right? And so we have to understand when we try to find out, okay, who is the fulfillment of the Antichrist? Who is the fulfillment of the beast? We have to always, when we look at Revelation chapter 13, we have to always consider, and when we do Bible study, when we study the whole Bible, we have to always keep in mind the original audience, when Apostle John penned the book of Revelation, he had an initial audience. His initial audience is not you and I. His initial audience is who? I mean, who were the original audience of the Apostle John? The first century followers of Yahushua, right? The first disciples of Yahushua. Seventh century, eighth century, I mean, 80 AD, 90 AD, 60 AD, that time, the time of the apostles. Right, And at that time, what was happening to the followers, the disciples of Archangel Yahushua? Persecution. Okay. Who was persecuting them from 54 AD to 313 AD, according to the Fox Book of Martyrs? Five million believers died for Yahushua during this period. That's a lot of people, especially considering the world population was not like it is today. Right? Five million is a lot. I don't know percentage-wise what that comes out to, but it's a lot of people. And so the followers of Yahushua were persecuted primarily by who? The fourth beast. Who's that? Rome. The Roman emperors, beginning with who? Nero. 
he started the systematic persecution of the followers and disciples of Yahusha. It started with Nero. Who is Nero? According to earlychurchhistory.org, Emperor Nero was one of the most diabolical of Rome's 12 Caesars. He practiced Machiavellian rules 1,400 years before Machiavelli wrote them. He used the absolute power he, obsessed, he possessed to preserve himself at all costs. To Nero, the end always justified the means. When he burned Rome to the ground, July 664 AD, and his heinous act became known, he cast about for a scapegoat to preserve the state himself. Not my fault, it's their fault. Change the subject from me to them. That was his philosophy. It was selfish. He was only thinking about himself. Anything to preserve himself, that's his philosophy. That's the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to preserve myself. And so he would do anything to do that. And so when he was being accused of burning down Rome, which, he, of course, he was guilty of, who did he blame? Well, the people who did not want to worship the emperors. Who are they? Who are those who stood out that did not want to worship the emperors? The disciples of Yahushua. He had the perfect scapegoat. And so the people of Rome could rally around that idea that these followers of a king named Yahushua, that they're the ones who burned Rome, they can buy that. And that's what happened, right? And so according, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all Christians who pleaded guilty, guilty of following Yahushua. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of the firing of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. Uh, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. And so this is how Nero came to be known as a devious despot who killed Christians for the fun of it. The way he killed the Christians was to torment them and mock them, throwing them to the arena to be devoured by beasts, to be torn by dogs, nailed on the crosses. They were lit up as though they were lamps with fire, and they burnt to serve as illumination when it's dark. This is what he did to the Christians, and the people of Rome accepted it. Right? And so when the Apostle John was writing, and his audience were the first followers of Yahushua, and, they, and he was writing about the beast, who do you think we're thinking? Who do you think they were thinking of? Nero, right? Because Nero, because he was the emperor, before you can buy anything, before you can do anything in, in Rome, you have to get uh, some kind of decree from him. You got to get some kind of mark. You got to get a seal from Nero. It's like today. For example, you have a house and you want to build something in your backyard, you need to get a permit, right? Back then, the permit was Nero's uh, seal. So you got to get a mark from Nero. And so all this symbolism, the audience in the first century, they understood it. And they had in mind Nero. And then the Bible says, compute the number of his name. And so they understood that in Hebrew, the name of an individual corresponds to a number, the letters correspond to a number. And so this was a way of hiding the identity of Nero, because if they were to put this and propagate this, it'll be burned. The books, the books of Revelation would be burned. 
by the emperors if they discover. I mean, if Apostle John went and wrote, okay, the beast is Nero, what's going to happen to that book? It's going to be burned. And so they had to hide it. <laughs> and the way they hid it was to give a code. And that code is what we call gematria, right? Gematria is known by the Hebrews. And in gematria, every letter corresponds to a number. Because the Bible tells us compute the name. The only way for you to compute the name is every, if, the, if the letter of the name has a number, a corresponding number. And so in gematria, each of the Hebrew letters has a number. And in Hebrew, the Caesar, um, Caesar Nero, his name is this. And if you compute the numbers, it comes out to 666. Six, six. Could it be him? I believe that's the first major fulfillment. There are many other antichrists, but I believe he was one of them. Remember, we're talking about repetition of pattern, the pattern of the antichrist. It fits Nero. It fits Nero, not just because of the number 666, but because it fits the pattern of the little horn. What's the pattern of the little horn? The little horn will rise, just like Nero. He will speak pompous words against the Mosai. He did exactly that. I mean, he demanded worship for himself, and he rejected Yahusha. He persecuted and made war against the saints of the Most High. He did that. He changed the times and the law. We'll have power for a time, times and a half, and a time. Well, perhaps the timing is a little off. But remember, this is just, this is not the complete fulfillment of the prophecy. Okay? But I believe it wasn't just Nero that fits the pattern. Let's go back to Revelation 13, 16 to 18. Right, it mentions it receives a mark. No one will buy or sell except those who has the mark or the name of the beast. The number of his name is calculate the number of the man. This number is six six six. It turns out there could be another pattern that fits this, right? I think you know what I'm thinking. The Seventh Day Adventist, they were looking at the, the papacy and the tiara that the Pope wore on his head, and according to the Seventh Day Adventist, it has the title of Vicarives Day or Vicar of the Son of God. When you think of Vicar, you basically have a replacement of the Son of God. The Emperor Nero, he opposed Christians, right? But this one, the Pope, wants to replace Christ. But still, both are Antichrist. You see the difference? Roman, the Emperor Nero, opposed Christ. Uh, the, uh, Pope, the papacy wants to replace Christ, but still fits the definition of Antichrist, because Antichrist means what again? To oppose or to replace. And so in this iteration of the Antichrist pattern, the Pope is going, he's not going to oppose Christ. I mean, the Pope did not preach against Christ, but he's going to replace him, <laughs> right? That's another Antichrist pattern. And when you look at Vicarius Philly Day, and when you calculate the Roman numerals, because some Roman uh, some of the Roman symbols had numerals to them. So when you look at Vicarius Philly Day and you add them all up, it comes up with what? Look at that. Six, six, six. That represents the papacy, the Roman pontiff. Well, does it, do, you, it, it, do we believe that he is, uh, the papacy represents the Antichrist because just because of the number 666? No. It must also fit the little horn pattern. Does it fit the little horn pattern? Yeah. The papacy rose in the sixth century, the first seal. Remember the first seal? When the book of Revelation opens up with the first seal, right? 
Someone's going to be victorious. Someone's going to win the crown to become uh, a rider of the white horse. We talked about that. This was won by the Pope. The, the Roman Pontiff became the Pope, right? Before that, he was just one of the bishops, but eventually he won and he became the head of all the church. And so he would speak pompous words against the Most High. And the Pontiff, the Catholic Pontiff, eventually would persecute and kill, put to death many individuals who rejected the beliefs of the Catholic Church, what we call the Inquisitions, right? Will persecute, make war against the saints of the Most High, will change the times in the law. Did they fulfill that? Yeah, because they changed the law of Yahuwah and they changed the Sabbath and the feasts of Yahuwah. They replaced the feasts with uh, Christmas and Easter, so on and so forth, right? So we have the pattern being uh, kind of fitting together. And then we'll have, we'll have power for a time, times and a half and a time. So that part is kind of iffy, right? But most of the pattern kind of fits. And so we don't have the complete fulfillment, but we're going to have that in the future. Because in the future, Revelation 13, 16, and 18 will be fulfilled. And all of the elements in this prophecy are going to be fulfilled. This time, the mark, it's not going to be the mark on the right hand and on the, what do you call it? The sign of the cross. It's not going to be that anymore. It's going to be different. It's going to be a different kind of pattern as being fulfilled, right? And so when we look at this pattern of the Antichrist coming up and with the number 666, we know the Antichrist represents someone against Christ or someone who replaces Christ. Both Antichrist figures were associated with Rome. Nero was the Roman emperor, right? And we have the Roman pontiff. Nero is an antichrist because he opposed Christ. He rejected him outright. Roman pontiff re replaced Christ because he's now the head of the church. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So he has taken the place of Yahusha, especially here on earth. And so when we have this pattern presented to us, it could be that the future antichrist, the ultimate fulfillment of the antichrist figure, it could be. He will have connections or he will be involved with the affairs of Rome. Could that be possible? Could be. I mean, where is Rome today? Could it be that the remnants, the kingdoms that resulted from Rome as an empire long ago, could it be regrouped? Could they conspire together, work together, come up with a one world religion? Could be. A one world government could be. It seems that we're headed towards that direction. And so out of that will come forth little horn. And this little horn will have the power of the emperor and also the Roman pontiff. Because the one behind him is the devil. The beast and another beast. A world emperor and a false prophet working together. And so it kind of combines Nero and the papacy together, you get it? And so that could be what is at work here and what we can expect to happen in the future. And so when we go back to the statue, when we go to the iron and clay, that is a future world empire that's probably being formed, being forged as we speak. And out of that will come forth a leader and his assistant who will be religious and he will basically replace our king, Yahusha. And so when Daniel saw the, the image of the beast, the four beasts, his re reaction 
was, you know, this is the end of the account. That's for me, Daniel. My thoughts greatly troubled me. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Because when Daniel was given the vision of these four beasts, uh, <laughs> he became so wor worried and he was kind of afraid, couldn't sleep. His countenance changed, but he kept to himself. Um, but he was comforted by the message of the angel who told him, but the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdoms and the, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. And so he took comfort, Daniel took comfort in the fact that after the fourth beast, after the little horn rises to power and conquers the people of Elohim, even after all of that, he takes comfort in the fact that's not the end of it. Because the Bible says the time will come when the, the court shall be seated. Yahuwah will take action. And the dominions, the kingdoms that will be overtaken by the Antichrist, the beast, the little horn, that will be taken away from him. And then he will be consumed and destroyed forever. This is why when we go back to Daniel chapter 2, the statue, there's something we haven't discussed yet in the statue, right? I mean, we saw the gold. Who's go what does gold represent? Babylon. And then we have the silver. What does silver represent? Mede Persia. And then we have the brass. What does that represent? Greece. And then the iron. What does that represent? Rome. And then iron and clay, maybe future Rome, future world empire. And there's something missing that we haven't discussed yet that was included in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember the dream? There's something we haven't discussed yet about that image. I'm going to show it to you. What, what haven't we discussed yet? Yeah, there's a stone in that dream, a stone. And what is that stone all about? In Daniel 2, 20, 34 to 35, you watched while a stone was cut, cut out without hands. That's interesting. Because when Yahuwah instructs Moses to build a tabernacle, it was with the instruction to use stones that is cut without hands, natural stones. Okay. And so that tells us this is a represent, representation of the tabernacle somehow, a sacred stone, not just any stone, but it's representing someone else or something else. And I think you already know what this stone represents, right? Stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet, right, of iron and clay. And so the stone is, gonna, this is going to strike, not at the head, not at the uh, chest and arms, not at the torso, not at the thighs, not the legs, but the feet and clay, the future world empire. You get that, right? The iron, uh, which, which struck the image of of its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like shaft from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Do you see where we're headed to? Brethren, who is that stone? Who is that stone? We know that is our king. Yahusha. You see, 
when the clay and the iron mixed together, that worldwide empire, when they will you know, create their dominion over all the kingdoms of the world, Yahusha is going to return from heaven. He is that stone and he will crush the clay and the iron. He will crush that empire. He will do that when he returns. That's why the stone represents King Yahusha. And after the stone crushes it, it becomes a mountain, right? That represents the millennial kingdom. Revelation 19.20, then the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And so when Yahushua returns for the final war, together with the saints who are with him, those who were raptured or harpazo to heaven, they're going to return with the king, and the king will destroy the iron and clay empire, the worldwide empire, led by the beast and the false prophet. They will be destroyed. And the first two to be cast in the lake of fire who? Yeah, the Bible says the beast and the false prophet. This is why, you know, if ever any of us will be left behind, um, the thing that we must never do is to worship the beast or accept his image or his mark. Because if we will not do that, if we will refrain from image worship, what will happen when Yahushua returns? Revelation 24, our last passage for today. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Yahushua and for the word of Elohim, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. No matter what happens, brethren, do not accept the mark. Do not worship the beast or his image. And if need be, be willing to die for the sake of the word of God and for the sake of our king, Yahusha. Because if that was the case, then we will be resurrected. And when we are resurrected, we will reign with him for a thousand years. We will be among those who will be with him to rule in the millennial kingdom. And we will join those who are sitting on the thrones. Who are they? They're the ones who are harpazo. And so there's going to be a, a, a reunion. Those who are harpazo first, and those who will be resurrected because they died for the sake of Yahusha during the power, during the years when the beast had power over the whole earth. Okay? And so no matter what happens, let us be loyal to Yahuwah, loyal to Yahusha, and let us do our best that we will live a life so that we can show to Abba and to our king that we are truly faithful and that we are truly born again because we place our hope and trust in our king. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Almighty and loving Father, thank you so much, gracious Abba, our almighty Allahim in heaven, Yahuwah, compassionate Father, please have mercy upon your people. We are preparing ourselves for the trumpet to be blown. Father, please help us to be worthy that we can stand before the Son of Man. Help us to overcome the wickedness of the world. Help us to be among those who will receive your promise to be harpazo together with the King. Our King Yahusha, help us today 
to learn to trust you, to learn to hope on you, to fix our gaze upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Work in our life. Heal us of our sicknesses. Strengthen our faith and help us to be bold in proclaiming you and proclaiming our Father. Father, please forgive our sins and help our loved ones, especially those who do not yet call upon you. May you please move their hearts while there's still the opportunity. Help us to share our faith boldly, yet with love, that we can be your instruments, that many more shall place their complete hope and trust in you. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. You have blessed each and every one of us. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.